And the question is this, do we have the obligation to feel empathy for those who least deserve it? Is that the antithesis of their later tyranny rather than the height of complicity? Which doesn't mean we excuse their crimes at all. It, it actually makes them more culpable. It's hard to be a human being. It's hard to be a person. It's hard to have this subjective consciousness that we're alive right now talking to each other. And what I say and what you say affects one another. That, that really, really, really matters. How do we get out of the cycle of ideological radicalism and othering, uh, especially when it comes to people who least deserve it? And it's an uncomfortable path. Uh, it's, it's troubling at times. It's disconcerting. But that makes it all the more important because we care so deeply about what it means to be a human being and what it means for other people to suffer, no matter their background. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is is Labyrinths. Most of us like to think of ourselves as empathetic people. We feel happiness when we see someone else's joy, and we wince when we see someone in pain. But what about people who have committed heinous crimes? Would you wince if the person in pain was Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un? It's hard to feel empathy for the people we think of as evil, the mass murderers and ruthless dictators of the world. But empathy is a muscle. And it can be flexed even for these people. The question is, what do we gain or learn by doing so? My name is Brandon Gaucher. Uh, I did my PhD in modern history at Fordham University. My new book is called Before Evil, and it's a book that seeks to examine the humanity of inhumanity, uh, to examine the human stories of some of the worst dictators in in history. What in the world made you want to examine that? (laughs) I'm really loud and passionate about history. I think the most important objective we have in any type of discussion of history is to engage the humanity of people, to feel for their lives, and and to to do that in an authentic way. And so as I've studied dictators at great length throughout the course of doing my doctorate, I focused on U.S.-North Korean relations. I went to a a, a conference in Korean studies, and I met this guy, and we were having coffee, and he was like, I just got back from Pyongyang. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, I was actually the translator for, uh, for Dennis Rodman. And I was like, yeah, right. And he was like, I'm not joking. He pulled out his phone, and he had a photo of him holding uh, Kim Jong-un's daughter. Wow. And like hanging out with Kim Jong-un. And so things like that really hit me in the gut. Kim Jong-un is a, a murderous tyrant, right? But I, I do think that he wants the best for his kids, hmm. wants the best for his family. And then I went to North Korea in 2015, and I saw the bodies of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. Um, I saw their human remains, and I thought about this notion of the human story. Um, was Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, born evil? Was this born as this this demon with horns who wanted to make people suffer? Or did he believe he was right? And what's the story about his life before he was evil? Evil being something people do that reflects a total lack of empathy for others' uh, reality. So, you know, that's uh, in short uh, how I came to this project, struggling with the notion of how do people do horrible things? Not believing they're horrible, but believing they're right. How did you go about researching this? I imagine that dictators can kind of be picky and choosy about what kind of information (laughs) they allow out about themselves. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in the sense that essentially Hitler or Stalin don't want to be seen as human. Like the notion Stalin, man of steel. 
like Hitler being referred to as the Fuhrer, you know, a term I don't use in the book. I call him Adolf. Uh, I call Stalin so-so. I choose humanizing names that they would not have wanted. Uh, they wanted to be seen as larger than life. And so you have something like Mein Kampf, which is an endless diatribe of, to a large extent, nonsense with some kind of truthful uh, snippets of his life. And someone like Stalin doesn't leave any <laughs> memoirs. But doing the research unfolded through a few ways. One, I went to Dartmouth. And I spent a long time in the basement stacks by myself. How many biographies of Adolf Hitler are there? There's quite a few. So I started by collecting all these biographies. And so that was step number one, secondary works, and combing through what are the, uh, the tidbits, the anecdotes about these people's lives that humanize them that historians haven't focused on coherently as a cohesive whole. And, and then I did find primary sources that were written by friends. A guy named August Kubizek, who was um, a close friend of Hitler's as a teenager, wrote a really famous book called The Young Hitler I Knew. Um, and even someone like Mussolini released memoirs before World War I, before he was anyone famous. He was writing constantly. And what comes across is, I think, what people don't necessarily want to see, which are stories of commonality, stories that make these individuals relatable, that they have these visions of greatness about themselves. For someone like Benito Mussolini, reading Victor Hugo's Les Miserables as a kid. That's from a place of altruism. That, that makes us uncomfortable. Horrible people are supposed to have horrible designs in the beginning. That's not the story I see. What does the question of evil mean to you? How would you define the problem of evil? Ronald Reagan in 1983, when he gives his evil empire speech, will draw on a quote from C.S. Lewis, and he'll say that the greatest evil plays out um, not just in concentration camps, there we see its final end, but some of the worst evil that we can imagine comes from warm, well-lit offices with men who are well-dressed uh, and wearing white collars and are totally comfortable, who, who don't have to yell, who speak very softly. Evil to me is this lack of empathy that comes not only from insight or the willingness to engage with the suffering of others, but it's about the intentional effort to remove oneself from that suffering. So if we look at someone like Joseph Stalin, he will give horrifying orders in the doctor's plot in the last few years of his life where he has doctors uh, arrested and tortured. Evil looks like to me, Joseph Stalin writing an order that says, uh, beat, beat, and beat again. That's evil for, for me uh, in the sense that Joseph Stalin knew what it meant to be beaten. He'd had a father that struggled with substance abuse, who was violent towards him and his mother. Stalin's mother in the early 1930s will uh, write some 30 pages describing Stalin's youth. And Stalin's mother will describe uh, that Stalin as a child was terrified of his father. He would run when he heard him coming and go to his mother and beg her to hide. And she would hold him and he would cry. So he knew what it meant to be beaten. And his takeaway for larger ideological purposes of power and realizing communism and so on, was that he would use the worst thing that ever happened to him for his own ideological ends. He knew that nobody can withstand endless beating and torment. People will break. That is reality. And he used that against innocent people. And he didn't do it showing up and carrying out the physical abuse. He did it from a lovely dacha in the countryside surrounded by photographs on the wall of children giving milk to lambs and so on, with volumes of, uh, by Lenin on the table, probably alongside things like Dostoevsky, which he banned for ordinary people to read. Uh, that, that's evil. 
for me. And, and it keeps me up at night. I lose sleep over it. How do human beings do these things? Can you share any surprising anecdotes about any of these particularly heinous individuals? <laughs> oh, there's so much to talk about in, the, in that regard. Okay, one, Adolf Hitler is a name synonymous with evil, deservedly so, responsible for the Holocaust, the murder of six million Jewish men, women, and children, uh, starts a war that's going to kill 50 million people. He loved his mom. He had a really close relationship with his mom. We want to look at these lives and see trauma. And trauma's there. Adolf Hitler's father's abusive, so is Stalin's dad. But the story is more of good, loving mothers. And um, when Hitler's mom gets breast cancer, when he's a teenager, he's going to Vienna, he's trying to go to art school, he's failing. He's not telling her that, but he's trying to find his way in life. And the doctor who took care of his mom was an Austrian Jewish physician named Edward Block. He said he'd never seen someone take news harder than this teenage kid Adolf did when he told him his mom was dying. And the kid sobbing and begging, does she not have a chance? And ultimately, when his mother is at the end, the last couple of weeks around Christmas, Adolf comes home from Vienna and uh, he takes care of her for the last two weeks. He cooks for her, he cleans, makes her her favorite meals. And when she dies, he draws uh, her image. Uh, and then he'll go to Dr. Edward Block, this uh, Austrian Jewish physician, and bow to him and say, I'll never forget what you did for my mother. Um, uh, and when the Nazis seize Austria and the Anschluss, uh, Edward Block will be allowed to leave Austria. And he'll give an interview about this in the United States. And he'll basically say that I was given privileges, which no other Jewish person in Austria was. Do you see the Adolf who's taking care of his ailing mother as the same Adolf who's overseeing death camps? Is, is there a shift in his personality or is he simply the same guy in a different context? Such a good question. Adolf Hitler, as that teenager, is not yet that murderous dictator. He's just a lost kid. And I think a lot of individuals could relate to the story of someone who is struggling to find their way in life, who's lost a parent. And I think we should feel empathy for that teenager in a vacuum. Uh, and that now we're getting into territory that makes people feel uncomfortable. Uh, he's not yet that person at that age. But we do want to look for kind of the before and after moment. Uh, and, and there is no one definitive moment that sends him down that road to extremism and mass murder. But the story of his mother does pop back up later in life. It's her photo he has on the wall uh, in his apartment. Uh, he will say at times when Christmas comes up, like, like, like 1935, he'll say he won't come out of his room around Christmas time. This is at the height of his power almost. And so there is this human story, almost echoes of humanity in someone who has now almost completely lost his humanity. But even Adolf Hitler, as an adult, as that despotic, disgusting figure, uh, loves Wagner. Uh, he has a favorite restaurant in Munich he goes to and has ravioli, which is just 30 minutes away from Dachau, where the Nazi regime is persecuting and ruining people's lives. So there's no one moment I think we can view that teenager as someone who is not yet that murderous dictator. This is the moment where appropriately someone might weigh in and say, who cares that Adolf Hitler loved his mother? Should we not be talking about the victims of the Holocaust rather than zeroing in on Adolf Hitler's humanity? And uh, I start the book by talking about their crimes for that reason. There should be no misunderstanding. There's no diminishing of guilt. It's absolute, but what we should do, because we care so much about the victims of their crimes, 
is to examine human stories that make their lives explicable. Evil is not something that is beyond our comprehension. If you think about inhumanity, it's a human story. Monsters aren't real. We are, human beings are. I'm thinking of the natural tribal instincts that we all have and that example of Hitler loving his mother, you know, there are much more mundane versions of that for all of us who very easily create others who are not a part of our tribe. Go on Twitter for five minutes, you'll just, it's rampant. There's plenty of people who love their mothers and who will take whole swaths of society and ridicule them at, at the sort of low end, um, wish for them to be expelled or wish violence upon them at the high end. Um, and even if they never rise to the level of actually carrying out violence, I feel like that impulse is very natural to us. Mm. And, and racism and xenophobia, those things are sort of universal human traits that have been around with humans as long as we've been anatomically modern humans. And I'm wondering what you think about if there's a difference in degree here or a difference in kind when it comes to somebody like a Hitler or a Stalin. Is it just a magnification of that tendency we all have to love and care about the people who are in our group? And when we decide who's outside of our group, we don't have empathy for them. The other version of evil here if you take like a Jeffrey Dahmer type, if you take someone who is so clearly mentally ill in some capacity that leads them to do just horrific acts of violence that have no empathy behind them. No even ideology behind yeah. them, you know. And I'm wondering, I, I don't see Hitler as the same as a Dahmer type. I, and I think it's a, maybe a little scarier because it doesn't just seem like he was born with some crazy brain abnormality that led him to want to eat people, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, it's a person who somehow slowly slides into that position and the tendency to dehumanize people who are not in your in-group gets pushed to its maximal scary place. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that that is a story ultimately uh, about us as an animal, us as a species. And in the introduction of the book, I start with this fundamental point. This is a story about us. Now, and this is a critique that some might have. They might say, okay, so you're speaking about the ways that these dictators, we have certain parallels with their lives. But in terms of mental illness, were these dictators like us? right? Like, weren't to some extent these people psychopathologically unique in terms of the, any predisposition towards, towards evil, towards sadism and so on? Well, A, no psychiatrist or psychologist can bring them back from the dead and engage in months-long dialogues to come to some definitive diagnosis. And so that's what's problematic about psychohistory. Uh, but, but then two, the story of their youths does not reflect the Dahmer-esque caricature of someone that suggests that they are having larger mental health issues uh, that is going to go a very, very dark road. Well, these were homicidal maniacs, and that's why people commit crimes against humanity. Uh, mental health issues and the notion of psychopathology makes 
people who commit terrible, terrible crimes more explicable. But these dictators don't reflect that. You don't see those stories definitively early on in their lives. You see, in many ways, ordinary kids. The road to evil comes from ideology. The core point is that homo sapiens are susceptible to ideological radicalization. And with that radicalization, we come to believe, yes, it's horrible. Yes, it's going to be upsetting. But this is what must be done. And just think what will be realized. We'll create a world, if we're talking about the, the Soviet Union, without rich and poor. And how can you be opposed? And in fact, the notion of you being neutral raises some real questions about you and what side you're actually on. It is not enough to support it vocally. We need you to participate. You know, the story of Vladimir Lenin's youth is a story of privilege and happiness. He comes from a lovely family, a lovely mother and a good father. And it's a, a youth with Christmas trees and dying Easter eggs and going sledding. Nothing in his childhood speaks to anything along the lines of what we would expect to see from a homicidal maniac. We see a straight A kid who is, is, is in many ways a model child for his parents. He has an older brother named Alexander. He calls him Sasha. And his older brother is the family's first hope, so to speak. He's a phenomenal kid. He goes to St. Petersburg University. Uh, he is going to be a professor specializing in like worms. Before the father had seen Lenin's older brother go off, he had told him, don't get involved with politics. And we're talking late 19th century Russia, 1880s. So Lenin's older brother starts to read about Marxism. And he doesn't approach Marxism from this notion of we're going to commit violent acts of terror, but from the notion of longing for a better world. Kids go to college and become Marxists all the time. Very few come home as actual terrorists. Lenin's older brother falls in with reading groups. And the, the, the transformation that happens in Lenin's older brother's life is he begins to believe that if I really, really believe in these principles of equality, shouldn't I be willing to act? And ultimately, he becomes wrapped up in a conspiracy to kill Tsar Alexander III. They're going to set bombs off with poisoned cyanide lace shrapnel that would have killed a lot of innocent people. The plot is broken up. And now we return to Simbursk, teenage Lenin, 16 years old, opening a letter for his mom. And that letter says, uh, Sasha's been arrested. He's been involved in a conspiracy to kill the czar. And the family's utterly dumbfounded. Where is this possibly coming from? The mother rushes to St. Petersburg to save her kid. His sister as well is arrested because she had been involved in the same circles. The mom writes to the czar and begs him, please, please, please give me my kids back. I can't imagine they would be involved in this. And the czar ultimately says, okay, let her see her son, Sasha, and, and see what he's become. And the mom goes to Lennon's older brother, Sasha, and they both collapse sobbing. And the mother begs him, you know, could you have done this? And the son looks at her and says, yeah. I did this, and, 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 I, and I can't say I'm sorry. And you need to understand they're going to hang me, Mom. And I'm not going to say sorry. I'm going to admit to everything. And he does. And rewind back to Lennon at home as a teenager. He receives word that his brother has been hanged. That's a crucial moment in his life. Lennon had no interest in politics before that. And he starts to ask, what could have driven him to this? And he said, he started with the notion that he must have been doing what he thought was right. And Lenin begins to say, I need to retrace his steps. And he begins to read certain books like What is to be Done by Nikolai Chernyshevsky. And he begins to argue, my brother had failed. What could I do? And this is his path into radicalism. And he'll later ask, someone will say, what is a good person? 
and he can't stand this. He'll make fun of it. And what is a good person? He'll wince at the, quote, nonsense of the intelligentsia about moral consciousness. There's no room for bourgeois morality. We will do whatever needs to be done. He will write a telegram in the Civil War in 1918 in Russia that says, hang, hang without mercy, 100 known rich peasants, bloodsuckers, people just like his family. And it's this terrible, terrible cycle in which the ends justify the means. And the question is, what side are you on? Because for Lenin is, you are with me or against the wall. And over and over and over in these men's lives, we see the story of ideological radicalization. The fundamental parallel that I see across all of these dictators' lives comes back in a large part to you have young people searching for a path. You know, so many among us, right? We all want to be the hero in the story. I know, what can I do that's going to really contribute to the world to make things better? And so you see at a young age, kids who are bibliophiles who love to read, uh, even Hitler as well, that's not something that's normally spoken about, uh, but he is someone who as a teenager is seen surrounded by piles of books and they imagine themselves as the hero in this story. And so in one sense, it comes from the search for this kind of heroic narrative and that takes shape even before they realize what the ideology will be. Yeah, in, the, in terrorism studies, there's a lot of talk about how it happens very quickly oftentimes where a, a young kid, 17, 18, undergoes a traumatic event, say death of a family member or something like that. And then the right person or the right imam, say, slips in and the sort of radical version of jihadism can take hold in the fertile ground of a fragile or, or opened mind and rearrange a person's life in short order. I remember reading this one case of these um, boys from Tunisia who were living in Naples and they were all 18 and they had a Muslim background, but they were very Western. They had pictures of bikini models on their walls and they played video games and they smoked hash. And, and then this kid's sister dies and he was sort of thrown into disarray and he sought help from this local imam who turned out to be affiliated with Al-Qaeda. And within two weeks, this kid has ripped down all of the titty posters. He's no longer watching soccer. He's now only watching these jihadi videos. He gives up alcohol and smoking, and he's on this entirely different path. And I, I bring up a jihadi example, but that same thing happens with radical fundamentalist Christian terrorists and so forth. Do you think that's the same sort of thing happening with dictators? And it's just, they, is a dictator just a terrorist with more power? Because I was about to say, like, one of the sort of things that people might argue is the reason why they became evil is because they had power. Like, power corrupts is what you hear. But what about powerlessness? What's the direction also? of causation yeah. there? Yeah. I think that that's an, an important parallel. And the story of power it does intertwine in the sense that these are individuals who have this belief that their power is absolutely fundamental to what must be done. And, and that seems quite opportunistic. And I think this crass opportunism does go hand in hand with ideological radicalism. But the power of ideology is we could take otherwise normal people with whom it'd be far more preferable and familiar for people to demonize and create caricatures rather than seeing a relatable human being that's undergone a process that we ourselves are susceptible to. But th that's the power of ideology, right? And here's an, an example of the power of ideology. 
that for, for Nazi Germany, even in the last year of the war, they continue to prioritize the merciless murder of European Jews to the point that it even undermines their ability to continue to carry on the war of defending themselves as the war turns against Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union's invading. They are still committing mass murder to the very last moment. The ideology of noxious anti-Semitism is genuine in the sense that Hitler is a true believer in that evil. Someone like Joseph Stalin is distinct, perhaps, uh, from someone like Muammar Gaddafi or, or Saddam Hussein, though there are, and I think, important commonalities, but in the sense that he's not only a power-hungry dictator, but something like uh, the five-year plan from 1928 to 1933 actually... Uh, hurts his position in power. It's such a disaster, this effort to actually realize communism, that there are whispers of like, do we really want this guy to be general secretary? But the, the core point is we have a hard time seeing human stories, and that is really dangerous. It's not a story about good people choosing to do bad things. It's a story about good people doing bad things, believing they are just. We are susceptible to this. And, and having the humility to say, I am susceptible to dogmatism and radicalism, which doesn't only result in Hitler as evil, right? Someone might criticize this and say, all right, okay, you're trying to tell me that there's an inner lurking Hannibal Lecter within all of us. And, and, and I think that's, that's way too simplistic. I do think that we have the capacity for acts of cruelty, big and small, that hurt people. And, and we have to ask ourselves, how do we get out of this ideological cul-de-sac and recognize the consequences of human suffering, the harm we cause is utterly real. But many times we undertake those actions, not realizing that they're wrong, but believing that they are right. That's deeply disturbing to me. The Cultural Revolution in China in 1966 and 1967, and the last well beyond those years, we're talking about the stories of ordinary kids, teenagers who commit violent acts, uh, students at elementary schools forcing teachers to swallow nails and human waste. Terrible, terrible, terrible crimes. And so this would be the moment where people would say, well, this happened in this country as a result of these people. And you see this really reductive generalization. This would never happen here. This happens over and over across every culture in big and small ways. And this is a human problem. And that reductive generalization of, well, you know, these people did this, this would never happen here. That's the first step to it happening here. All of us fall prey to this need to other and to demonize because it separates someone else from us. This is something other people do. Evil, well, this has nothing to do with me. And that is the road to doing what these men did. We don't see living, breathing human beings suffering. We don't think about their reality. When we think about the noxious nature of racism, it is this wholesale generalization in a way that is callous and cruel, and it's the language of violence. Uh, so there's a lot of overlapping strands there. The demonization, the othering, the looking for caricatures to explain things you don't understand. Not only is it wrong, it's the first step becoming like what we abhor, what we find to be so heinous.
can't help but notice that all of the examples of evil people in your book are men. <laughs> um, what's up with that? Is this a, a man problem or do we have some uh, interesting examples of women throughout history who are also committing horrific crimes? I would frame my answer to that by emphasizing the history of, of patriarchy and sexism that I think has diminished roads and avenues to power for women, that the notion of the inhumanity of man is something that is in no way uh, the monopoly of any one you know, gender or sex. That is universal. And the reason why we're not seeing these stories of a, a despotic individual at the, this level of power in the 20th century, I think, is a story of, of, of patriarchy and sexism. And yet at the other side, we see this notion of, of demonizing uh, you know, the, the woman who represents all of society's fears over and over and over. When we look at the demonization of women, and when we look at the caricatures that play out, we see the very similar parallel of something has happened that we don't understand, and we are now going to embrace a caricature that helps us explain it. Uh, Amanda, I was thinking about what you went through in your trial and the really heinous caricatures that sought to say things like the face of an angel, but the eyes of a killer, an angel's face and a demon's soul. So now we're going to make up these caricatures which are rooted oftentimes in overt misogyny. We're going to gender this, and we're going to come up with these really reductive caricatures to try to explain something. And it is something we see play out over and over and over. And it is this othering, this demonization that is so hurtful and so cruel. And the ultimate connection back to what we're talking about is the need for people to try to make things explicable and to fall back on reductive stereotypes that, again, are dehumanizing, and it's the first step to becoming like what it is we abhor. And that really upsets me as I, as I think about those things that were said about you. If ideology leads you on this path where you are convinced that what you're doing is right, you have to find a way to discount all the evidence that what you're doing is wrong. And I, f I find that humans do that in a couple ways. One is the, well, that's not a human. That Jew is not a human, right? You find a way to reclassify that suffering as something else. And the other way is the same thing corporations do when they dump chemicals into a river. Is you have layers of abstraction and boardrooms and things between you and the end result of the harm you're causing. And you distance yourself from actually having to see it. And so one thing I'm wondering is how much were these various dictators actually confronted with the end result horrors that their policies were achieving? Did Hitler tour the death camps? Did Mao see the bodies piling up from the famine? How much were they actually witness to the atrocity they caused? It is stunning the extent to which they avoid the consequences of their actions. Hitler never goes near a death camp. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Heinrich Himmler, the one time he sees an execution, he falls to his knees and vomits wow. with, with nausea. Adolf Hitler won't even visit wounded German soldiers. Wow. So it's too, much, it's too much for him to see. There's stories of him pulling down the shade on his train when confronted with images of soldiers wounded going by him. And by hmm. the way, he had been in the First World War. He wasn't a frontline combatant. He, he was wounded. And, hmm. and he did suffer from a poison gas attack. He had seen war. Uh, and he will cut himself off from it. Someone like Joseph Stalin will also, again, have very little to do with the consequence of his policies. Uh, when you have 
5 million Ukrainians starving to death as a result of collectivization and his industrialization plans in 1932, they will close their ears to stories about famine. Though I don't want to hear it. One time uh, at the height of World War II, uh, Hitler is confronted at his vacation home in the mountains, right, by a wife of a Nazi party official who's there who says, I was in Amsterdam and I saw Dutch Jews uh, being deported and it it looked horrible. It it looked like something really bad was happening and brought this up to him directly in front of a group of people. And the anecdote says that Hitler said nothing but got up and left the room. And the message next day was, you need to leave. Wow. So... There is zero doubt that Adolf Hitler knew exactly what they were doing. There there is no doubt whatsoever that the Nazi leadership intentionally knew that they were committing mass murder. Hitler did not want to see that. An exception to this is when there's a plot to kill him in 1944, there is the, the, the suggestion that he asked for the films of the people being hanged who tried to kill him. But let's turn to Mao, because Mao is responsible for... You know, up to 45 million deaths. And, and I say this in the sense of not comparing numbers, right? These are crimes against humanity that stand on their own. But I, I just want to emphasize the level of Mao's guilt. Uh, the Great Leap Forward leads to a widespread famine. 45 million people die. And here's a direct example of what we're talking about. Liu Shaoqi, essentially number two in the People's Republic of China, will go home to his own home village and see unbelievable starvation and suffering. And we'll go to Mao, who's sitting beside a swimming pool, and Liu Xiaoqi will challenge him. He says, uh, do you know how many people have died? Do you know how much suffering has occurred? Do you know that people have even resorted to cannibalism? History will remember this. It's all going to go into the books. We're responsible, me and you. We're responsible for this. That was a very very dangerous thing to do. A, a great historian named Frank Dakota will say that was the moment that Mao Zedong said, this person is an enemy. This is, this is a foe. And Liu Xiaoqi will die a terrible, terrible death in the Cultural Revolution. All this talk of evil begs the obvious question. How do we prevent it? If it could happen anywhere, how do we stop it from happening here? The first thing I'm going to say is not very satisfying. Um, uh, George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel said that the only thing we learn from history is that we, we don't learn from history. And what he means there is not that people don't look to the ages for advice. What do people do in this situation? What can we do in this situation? But that, now I'm putting this in my own words, that reality itself is an endlessly evolving algorithm. It is a sea of numbers well beyond our human comprehension. Maybe quantum computing will get there in the future, but our feeble minds are not capable of translating reality from one historical moment to this moment and coming up with a list of lessons, one through five, reality is endlessly more complex. And so in one sense, uh, there is no one definitive way to say mass murdering despots came from this moment in childhood, and this is how we avoid them in the future. And yet the commonality that we have to try and come away with. What is some way out of this vicious cycle of ideological radicalism that plays out in all cultures, in all places? Uh, And I think the story there is to recognize that we ourselves can become the monsters we deplore, to understand that we all try to make uh, decisions that we think are going to make the world a better place. But what happens when the dogmatism begins to ramp up, when we want to explain things so badly that we resort to simplistic ideas that are hurtful and can be the road to violence, the way out that I think is above all else to distinguish ourselves by embracing compassion. 
empathy, love, mercy, even for those who maybe least deserve it. That doesn't mean people aren't held accountable, but it does mean that we strive to distinguish ourselves because that's what is so right about being a human being, to, to love, to show mercy, maybe even when it would be at a surface level more satisfying not to. Mussolini and his mistress are dragged in front of gates and they are shot. And an anti-fascist journalist will say, quite profoundly in my mind, to shoot them was justice. To have spared their lives would have been sacred. And so the question is this, can you feel bad for Joseph Stalin lying in his own urine as an old man in a prison, a totalitarian prison of his own making, which he now is this helpless figure with no one willing to come in and check on him? Can we engage in a discussion of empathy while being respectful to the suffering these men caused at the utmost? And the larger question of so what, why? It makes me wonder about the opposite end of the spectrum. What makes a Gandhi? What makes a Martin Luther King Jr.? If you have people who are extraordinarily lacking in empathy through whatever means, combination of genetics, environment, and ideological um, sh shaping, you also have people who exhibit a tendency to be extraordinarily empathetic and to transcend that natural human tribalism that we're all afflicted with. It's so natural. And to look at the world and just see humans and not see a bunch of other people who are different than me and my people, I don't think that's natural. How do you explain those people? When we talk about the notion of, of what is sacred, right? I'm not coming at this in an implicitly religious sense, but if you look at you know, the notion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of turning the other cheek um, and, and the notion of a maximum compassion, I think that an uncomfortable element that comes up in that sense, it might be the question from somebody of, don't we have the obligation to fight for what is right still? Did we not have to use violence against Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany? And so I, I see a tension there and, and an appropriate tension because the reality is courageous opposition is needed to fight tyranny. And so when we think of a historical actor like Gandhi or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, or we're looking at this in a religious context in terms of someone like Jesus, it raises the question of, where does this deep sense of empathy and love and compassion come from? And where do we draw that line? Uh, Dr. King is asked on camera, you know, do you not respond in Hungary as the Soviet Union is violently putting down a fight for freedom? And, and Dr. King will say, no, there are moments where you would struggle. But this is something where I think Malcolm X offers a critique of someone like Dr. King in which he says, you know, how can you tell the person being lynched to not fight back against the lyncher. So in one sense, there is this question of where does this divine-like notion of empathy come from, in which you show this ability to, to be compassionate even as you're suffering. But then the line that I think Vladimir Lenin would raise, you know, what are you talking about? States use heinous violence all the time for political ends. And as Karl von Klausowitz says in On War, that's what war is. It's a continuation of politics for certain ideological goals. Ha haven't w many Western democracies used terrible violence for a larger end? Did, did the United States not drop the atomic bomb twice in Japan? Did the United States and, and England not firebomb Dresden and Hamburg? I think we get into conversations in which we engage those dilemmas. But the framing of those dilemmas is not only about an effort to explain why what happened the way it did. It's about to engage the notion of, of, of what it meant to be a German civilian in Dresden, as that, as, as that city was firebombed. 
what it means for uh, an African-American man in the 1960s to experience violent racism, right? Um, to, to, to see murder playing out uh, and to be a Japanese citizen in Nagasaki and to experience nuclear war. These are uncomfortable conversations that we have to have because I believe there is a right and we have to struggle for that right. The argument that I would make is it doesn't mean um, that we close our eyes to oppression and that we don't struggle for what is right uh, forthrightly. It, it just means that we have to balance that with this notion of love and empathy. The notion that executing Mussolini, that was justice, but would have been the sacred thing to do. And does that distinguish us from his tyranny? I think crucially there... Mussolini's been captured at that point, right? The, yeah. It's the the question of when do you fight versus when do you go by King's dictum that love drives out hate, right? Only light drives out the darkness. That doesn't work when you're in the midst of fighting a war with the Nazis. You can't just shower the Nazis with love while they're murdering Jews, right? right. But once you have defeated them with violence, the question is, do you then turn to mercy or do you then continue to use violence? Because hanging those people, shooting them, et cetera, that's just further violence. And it's violence not at that point to stop harm. It is violence to achieve some abstract notion of justice. That quote you gave us about Mussolini, it's supposedly that's justice. I would say that that's not even justice because I don't think that that repairs the harm. And I think real justice repairs harm. And murdering Mussolini in that way, is it helping anybody? Who does it help? This is a, a very difficult topic in the sense that if we think about how to deal with war criminals who are responsible for the Holocaust and wars of aggression throughout Europe, there is this larger discussion of how do we be as sensitive as possible to the, the victims of the suffering they caused and what is going to be the, the appropriate punishment for some of the worst evil we've ever seen. But I would say is I think of someone like uh, the American diplomat George F. Kennan and his long telegram at the very beginning of the Cold War, and I paraphrase, but he said, the, one of the most pressing dangers we face in squaring off with the Soviet Union is that in seeking to combat them, we become like them. And, and, and I think that is a crucial warning. Kim Il-sung would be an example of someone who grows up in amid Japanese imperialism in Korea. He grows up in a homeland that has been taken over by a foreign power and that is exploiting it. And Kim Il-sung's guerrilla struggle against Japan uh, is in many ways one that reflects courage and, and a willingness to give his life for his people. When he is a hungry insurgent, they're struggling for food. There were moments that villagers don't support them. They, they can't understand it. Don't you know what we're doing? Don't you know how much we're suffering for this? And then the road begins where they begin to deliver notes that say, you will deliver this, this, and this, or we will take hostages and we will kill them. You either love your goods more than you love your men, or you're going to give us what we want. And they begin to take hostages. And you know, they reach for violence, like a drowning person reaching for a demon's hand to save them. The Korean insurgents fighting and the Chinese insurgents fighting the Japanese Manchuria have every reason to believe they are going to die. <laughs> and that life and death circumstances, they embrace brutality. And that is the road. 
That's how it starts. Yes, I know it's upsetting, but if we don't do this, how could we continue the struggle? The road there is one in which we begin to say, yes, it is horrible that we will do this, but we must do it. And Lenin would chime in and say, this sounds like a contradiction, right? States use mass violence for only the state has the monopoly on legal violence, right? And those are uncomfortable, confounding contradictions, even as I think we should very directly say what we find to be right and what we find to be wrong. The issue you're raising about the fear of becoming the thing that you're combating, it almost makes me think that the ends justify the means mentality is just inherently a trap. And it's a trap for two reasons. One, because you don't know if you'll actually achieve the ends that you hope to achieve. And if you have heinous means and you never actually achieve your glorious end, then all you're left with is an accumulation of heinous acts, right? And the other thing is that the means change you. Mm -hmm. And every time you engage in the means, you become different. And eventually the ends that you want will alter if you alter in the process. It plays out that way over and over and over. As Nietzsche said, man stares into the abyss, mm. but the abyss stares back into you. And someone like Vladimir Putin now in the Kremlin, who seems utterly convinced that what he has done is right, that uh, he believes his own truths. He believes what he's doing had to happen. I think the ideology aspect of that is real. Now Vladimir Putin has the moment where he looks in the mirror and it's hard to know whether this individual is capable of that self-insight, but perhaps, just perhaps, an individual looks into the mirror and realizes they have become the villain. They are the despot. Do I think Putin is capable of that in terms of his life story? No. But I hope that we are, and I hope that we see it before it gets to that point. And I hope that when listeners hear something really ugly being said, a caricature, it's not just wrong. It's the language that leads to dehumanization and violence over and over and over. Trying to see the humanity in those who have acted with inhumanity is a challenge, but it's one that has become very important to me. In prison, I lived alongside many women who'd done heinous things, like murder their own children. I tried my best to empathize with them, and I learned a lot about their humanity and my own in the process. So we hope you've found some value in the challenge of empathizing with figures like Hitler or Stalin. It's not about excusing what they did, but understanding how ordinary people can slide into radicalism and violence. Brandon Gaucher's book is called Before Evil. You can find out more at beforeevil.com. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And please spread the word about labyrinths. Leave us a five-star review and check out knoxrobinson.com where you can find all the crazy stuff we're up to. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, along with Sophia Gates, with additional editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Budo Karp.